welcome to episode 562 of the Entertainment 2.0 podcast brought to you by the digitalmediazone.com. I'm Josh Pollard, and this is the show that puts you in control of your favorite movies, music, shows, and games. It's just me tonight. Richard had to take the week off, but we weren't going to miss two weeks in a row. So a solo show with me, which you might think would lead to a shorter episode, but we've got a lot of news to cover from the last two weeks. And we've got some listener feedback that was sent in to our email inbox at entertainment20 at the digitalmediazone.com. Both of these are from uh, what I believe are longtime listeners. First one is from Alex. He says, hey, Richard and Josh, thanks for giving the Steam Deck some coverage on your recent podcast. As someone who is both a gadget nerd and has a sizable Steam library with a growing backlog of games I have yet to play, the Steam Deck is right up my alley. I largely agreed with your take on this product, though here are a few additional thoughts. Number one, I don't think this is a Switch competitor, no matter how many people claim that it is. I just don't see any real crossover in the Venn diagram between potential Switch buyers and the PC gaming crowd. If there's an existing market that I think Valve hopes to get a piece of, it's the gaming laptop market. And Alex, I I think you do make a really good point there. And uh, given the pricing of this thing, it is a lot cheaper than buying a gaming laptop. And as we discussed in, in that episode, a whole lot more portable than a gaming laptop. His second point is price. While I agree with you that the lowest tier option is not the one to get, I was frankly shocked at the pricing overall. If you had asked me to guess the price of the top two tiers just by looking at the specs and pictures, I would have thought it would be in the $800 to $1,000 range pretty easily. So even ignoring the bottom option, the fact that the other two are in the $500 to $650 range is a little crazy. And uh, option number three, or, or point number three, is what is Valve really up to? They have to be selling these at a loss. So what is their goal? Simply to drive more sales in the, seams, in the Steam store? Continue pushing Steam OS as a way to reduce their dependency on Windows? Or is this another step in their growing experience with building hardware devices? Given how badly the original Steam boxes flopped, It's hard to imagine they want to try that again, though maybe with better focus and pricing, they could find a foothold in the console market. Honestly, I have no idea and would be curious to hear your thoughts, but I don't think that their only aspiration here is to just bump up game sales. Could they be positioning themselves for the unthinkable, a subscription service of some kind? Thanks for the great podcast, guys. Alex, thank you for the great piece of listener feedback. What are they up to? I'm with you. I I do think that this has more to do with Steam sales than potentially hardware. Now, maybe they do see themselves as really being able to get into the larger console marketplace. And you could make a fair argument that they could, given that The PlayStation and the Xbox, at least going back one generation, they're really just glorified gaming PCs anyway, right? I mean, they're just running AMD hardware that isn't all that different from what you could build a gaming PC out of. So maybe they're thinking, well, we actually can build gaming PCs now because the amount of development effort, or sorry, gaming consoles, because the amount of developer effort is is a lot lower than it used to be when it comes to making games that are available for PC and the consoles now that the consoles are basically just PCs. So I think that's a possibility that they use this as their intro into maybe potentially a larger larger console play here. But I also think that this could really be primarily about just selling more games because one thing that I've been wondering is how how have Steam sales been doing since Xbox Game Pass has taken off? The Xbox Game Pass library is pretty fantastic, including on 
PC. So if if you can pay just a few dollars a month or, or up to $15 a month if, if you want access to Game Pass on console and PC and get that giant library of games, why wouldn't you? Like Steam sales are great and all, but to not have to buy games at all because you've just got this fairly cheap subscription going on, it's kind of a nice place to be. So I, I do wonder if the Xbox Game Pass subscription service is eating into some of their sales. Uh, and of course, they, they're also facing more competition from the Epic Store and and some of those other third, I shouldn't say third party. I mean, it's PC. There There is not really a first party except for Microsoft there. But I'm not sure, you know, like we mentioned on the previous uh, episode when we talked about the Steam Deck, there's still a lot of Steam games that don't actually work in SteamOS, aka Linux, because of the anti-cheat software and things like that. So all of those issues are really going to have to start to get figured out and 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 rectified for for SteamOS to to work well as a primary gaming console. You know, the other fun news that that hit the the waves this week and this was after we got Alex's email is Phil Spencer apparently has a Steam Deck and he said, "Hey, you know what? This works really well for Xbox games." <laughs> he was using it for some XCloud streaming, playing Halo on a Steam Deck. So that's probably not exactly the news that the folks over at Valve were hoping to hear this week. But then again, if Phil Spencer from Xbox has a Steam Deck, it's because they let him have one. So maybe it's not such bad news for them. Anyway, thanks again for the feedback, Alex. All right, we've got one more, and this one is from Rob W. He says, how's it going, Josh and Richard? Your recent show talking about Plex updates reminded me of a question I had about the service. We recently had an AT&T internet outage of two and a half days. I thought to myself, finally, my local media is going to save the day. I've got over 2,000 movies and over 100 TV series saved on Plex server. So surely something on there would prevent our family of five from having to (gasps) spend time with each other. I fired up the Plex client on the TV and got an error message saying the server wasn't available. I thought that was weird since our local network was just fine. Uh, Just the internet was out. Tried Plex clients on my tablet and PCs and got the same message. Our cell phones, which still did have an internet connection, could still access the server. I thought there might be some setting turned off in Plex server, but found that I couldn't access the server settings even from the computer it's installed on. Does Plex now require an internet connection to function? I was able to eventually access all the media on our TVs through the Roku media player using DLNA, but that was a god-awful experience in comparison. Yeah, DLNA has never been very fun to use. Was this a client authentication issue or something? Meaning, do the Plex clients require an internet connection prior to connecting to a server, even if they're all on the same network? It seems ridiculous to me that a client and server on the same local network couldn't talk to each other. And is there something I can do to prevent this situation prior to our next inevitable AT&T outage? Thanks for any help. Also, I thought you guys would get, get a kick out of these. I'm coming up on my 21st anniversary for my Netflix subscription. I first started them as a senior in college, and they've had enough content to keep me subscribing ever since. Also, we're still on one of the cable holdouts because it's simpler. Gives us access to all the apps, and it's simple. We pay $80 a month for the AT&T U-verse U200 package that includes a couple of TV boxes, DVR, and HBO Max. It's a way better deal and less hassle than the competing over-the-top live TV services like YouTube TV, Hulu Live, etc. Love the show, guys. All right, well, I did a little bit of digging into this, and it turns out that, yes, for a lot of situations, your Plex server and, and to use your Plex server will require internet access. And there's the the super obvious thing of like, yeah, there's there's a bunch of internet streaming media on there. Well, of course, you would need 
an internet connection for that. But some of the fast user switching, user authentication type functionality does require an internet connection. And a lot of Plex client apps require it also. Uh, Android TV, Apple TV, Chromecast, Fire TV, most smart TV apps, PlayStation, Sonos, TiVo, Xbox One, and Plex Media Player all require an internet connection to use them. Also, of course, your Plex Media Server will require an internet connection for all sorts of things like updating your metadata and things like that. And, and you can't add new content to a Plex Media Server without a connection. So Plex does have a pretty good help uh, support article on the topic, and we'll link to that in the show notes for anybody else who is wondering. Um, we did, of course, share that with Rob, and he replied and and told us that apparently MB doesn't require an internet connection. So perhaps that's your your better option in in these sort of uh, emergency situations when you don't have an internet connection at all, because you could. I think, in theory, have MB and Plex pointing at the same uh, collection of data. You would probably just want to make sure that only one of them is managing the metadata, or else that could get hairy in a hurry. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much to Rob W. and Alex for sending us some listener feedback over the last couple of weeks. And with that, we will get into the news. First up on the video side, TVs. We love new TVs, and TCL has got some new ones, new 6 and 5 series TVs. And you might be saying, wait, didn't they just release a new 5 and 6 series of TVs earlier in the year? Yes, they did. These ones are a little bit different. Uh, They've got some new hardware and, maybe the bigger story, different software. Most people are used to getting a TCL TV and it having Roku on it. But these ones have Google TV, not Android TV, Google TV, like what's on the uh, Google TV with Chromecast device that came out last fall. Now, they say that they're not abandoning Roku, that they think that the market is going to be very similar to the mobile market, where it started with lots of different players, but it really whittled itself down to just two players. You've got Android and you've got iPhone, right? In the mobile space. And they think that in the TV space, it's going to whittle itself down to Roku and Google TV. Now, I'm going to bet that LG and Samsung don't quite agree with that, considering LG has WebOS and Samsung has Tizen on their TVs. But those are also proprietary options that they don't make available to uh, other competitors. So, I mean, maybe TCL can say, well, we meant for everybody who didn't make their own operating system, but uh, I I don't really disagree with, with TCL on that front. Uh, with, with those obvious exceptions of Samsung and LG, I, I do expect them to continue to uh, support their own operating systems. But for pretty much everybody else, is there really much of a reason for them to be Uh, building their own operating system and and app ecosystem. I'm not sure that there is when Google TV and Roku are both really, really good options. So that's it from the software front on these new TCL TVs. The hardware is also a little bit different. So we're going to focus primarily on the 6 Series. It's the higher-end model of these two. It's not the highest offering in TCL's lineup. That would be the 8 series, uh, which supports 8K and all sorts of features and still runs Roku, not Google TV. That's worth pointing out. So the 6 series now, it will support 4K at 120 hertz. The Roku ones with the older hardware, they'll do 120 hertz, but only up to 1440p. So uh, a nice little win there. They also, the the new 6 series has two HDMI 2.1 ports that do have variable refresh rate and uh, auto low latency mode. So key there for you gamers out there. The thing that's going to be the most controversial about these new TVs is, of course, 
their Google TV. So they've also work as a Google Assistant. The remote has a button on on it for the Google Assistant where you just hold the button down and it listens for your commands just like a Google speaker would. They wanted to make things even easier. That's giving them a lot of credit, I suppose. The TV has a a microphone built into it that is always listening. And I'm sure a whole bunch of you just said, nope, I'm not buying this thing then. I do not want a TV that is always listening to me. We're already dealing with these TVs that have the software built in that knows exactly what we're watching so that they can sell all of that data for to, to advertisers. I don't need them listening to everything that's happening in my house. Well, if you trust them, there is a switch on the back of the TV that does turn off the microphone. So it's an option. Again, I don't know if you trust it, but it is there to turn off the microphone. And if you do that, you can still use the button on the remote to control the Google Assistant. These new TVs are going to be available any day now. And in the 6 Series, they're going to offer it in two different sizes, 55-inch and 65-inch. Uh, the smaller one will be $9.99, and the larger one will be $12.99. That's honestly a little bit higher than I expected. I guess I just got used to the 6 Series being like $700, but these TVs do continue to get better and better and better. And I don't know, if I can swing it this fall, I I would really like to upgrade my TV to a 65-inch and having one that has multiple HDMI 2.1 ports that, that will do 4K at 120 hertz, that sounds pretty good to me. That that sounds like exactly the thing that I need for my Xbox Series X, especially since, while I love those OLEDs, they are still really, really expensive. So uh, TCL's new 6 Series and 5 Series worth looking into if you're in the market for a new TV. If you're sick of watching TV at home, and you want to get back to the movies? Well, our next story is for you. AMC and Warner Brothers have have reached an agreement on what they're going to do when it comes to uh, exclusivity windows for their movies before they make it to streaming services. Twenty, well, twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, we saw a lot of these studios saying, "Well, we can't really release to very many theaters right now, so I guess we're just going to release." our movies on our own streaming services. And then even into this year, as more and more theaters did start to open up, a lot of these services still said, well, this worked really well for us. So we're going to keep releasing our movies on the same day as the, the box office opening uh, on, on our own streaming services. Think about Black Widow, right? Black Widow released on Disney Plus the same day that it released in theaters and Disney made a whole lot of money making that available on Disney Plus. And that's money they didn't have to share with the theaters. But AMC and, and Regal Cinemas and, and all of these other large movie theater chains uh not not very happy with that because that's making their lives very difficult and it's gonna make it harder for them to stay in business. Well, it, it looks like most of the major studios are starting to to make uh, agreements with the theaters. And it looks like they're all starting to fall into about the same agreement. So Warner Brothers here with AMC, they're doing a 45-day window. So what does that mean? It means that when a movie comes out, it'll be in theaters first, and it will not be on a streaming service or anywhere else for at least 45 days. And it looks like most of the big-name players uh from from the studio side and the theater side are making pretty similar agreements. So roughly 45 days for, for most of, of these companies. And you might be thinking, 45 days, that's a lot. Well, it actually isn't because pre-pandemic, these numbers used to be 60 days, 70 days, 90 days. You know, they, they some of them were a lot longer. So if if you're done with movie theaters or I mean there are a lot of people who've been done with movie theaters for years. You're, you're not going to have to wait super long. It's only 45 days. It's not nearly as long 
as it used to be. But I, I do think the days of day and date releases, a simultaneous release of a, a movie on a streaming service and in theaters, I think they're pretty much gone in most cases. Getting back into your home theater, we mentioned a few episodes ago that YouTube TV was rolling out a new 4K add-on to their live TV streaming service. But at the time, we didn't really know what was going to be available in 4K. And now we know a few more things that are going to be available. So this week they announced that Thursday Night Football, the the NFL games on Thursday nights, will be in 4K. Some college football games, I mean, that's not super helpful, but there's what, 50, 60, 70 college football games every single weekend? They're not all going to be in 4K. And uh, a, a whole lot of English Premier League soccer slash football, whatever you want to call it, uh, a, a lot of those matches will also be aired in 4K on YouTube TV. Now, again, to do that with YouTube TV, you've got to pay for this 4K add-on. And the price for that is technically $20 a month for this sports streaming. But for the first year, it's $9.99 a month, which I think makes a ton of sense. Make it cheaper for this first year when you don't have nearly as much content there. But uh, this this article that we're going to link to from Streamable is... They have a really good tip here. The The items that we just talked about that are available from Fox, you will also be able to stream those in 4K using their Fox and, and Fox Sports Go apps if you log in with your TV Anywhere credentials. So you could use YouTube TV, not pay for the 4K add-on, and watch those those Fox items in the Fox apps in 4K. Now that's a bigger hassle. You, you know, you have to have those Fox apps. You're, you're not just going to be able to go from your guide in YouTube TV uh, to it. So it's a little bit more work, but it's totally doable. And it means even if you're not on YouTube TV, you know, if you've just got traditional cable, you typically get to use TV Anywhere credentials from your your local cable provider you will also get to stream these these games in 4K. All right, next up, a couple of audio stories. And frankly, I am way more excited about this next story than I would have initially thought. So it is, it's another week with some news from Plex. And this time around, it's for their Plex Amp app. So that is a desktop application for playing music from your Plex library. We've talked about this app in the past. You know, it, it, it was built a while ago to to look fairly similar and be reminiscent of the old Winamp music player that, of course, rings nostalgic for me. I, you know, I grew up listening to MP3s on Winamp in, you know, Windows 98 way, way, way back in the day. But I'm also not one that tends to listen to very much of my own personal music anymore. So it's not an app that I've used in a while. I'm, as most of you know, a huge Spotify user. This app makes me want to change that. There's a lot of cool new features here that they've built in. So basically what they've done is they've got a whole lot of like machine learning type things going on here where they are analyzing the music that you have on your server. And this is not metadata analysis. This is actually the audio of the the audio files that you have. So uh, all all of the the things that they're discovering about the music in terms of like musical styles and all of that sort of stuff, it's based on the audio, not the metadata. A couple of important things there. One, it means it works for anything that you've got in your Plex library. You know, if you've got some super obscure release from from some indie artist that never made it big, this will work. If you re- recorded your own music, this will work. You know, if you had, uh, they they joke, you know, your high school band that you had uh, back when you were in high school 
all of that would get scanned and it, it's going to be able to analyze what type of music it is without depending on some third-party metadata library that just says, oh, this is rock. Okay, thanks. That's not very helpful. If, if I want to compare, you know, play something similar to this. Oh, well, it, it's rock. So how about Led Zeppelin? No, this is nothing like Led Zeppelin, you know, that sort of thing. So that's, that's the first part of this. They've got this really advanced algorithm for figuring out sonic similarity in, in your music. So then after they've scanned your entire music library, they've built a whole bunch of really cool features on top of that. So like everyone's used to like Pandora where you can say, I want to listen to dead mouse radio and it's going to try and play dead mouse and a bunch of songs that are like, or a bunch of music that's like the music the dead mouse produces. And it works fairly well in most of those services, but not always the greatest. But again, you want something like that on your music collection. Well, now you get it. And you can pick a track and say, yep, play uh, other songs like Shake It Off from Taylor Swift. And it's going to find a whole bunch of other songs that sound similar to that. Or maybe you're listening to Metallica's Black album and you want to listen to other albums that are like that album, not just songs, albums. You want to listen to complete albums. You can do that all based on this sonic similarity. Another option that they're they're building in there is called Mixes for You. This is similar to to some of that functionality that I really like in Spotify where it knows the things that you've been listening to a lot lately and it'll say, "Okay, let's make a a playlist essentially of the stuff that you've been listening to and things that sound similar to it that you haven't listened to in a while." So that you're you're also going to get mixed in some songs that you probably are really in the mood to listen to, but that you might not have thought of to add to that playlist. I think that's all really, really cool. They've also been adding some other just nice to have things. So they've added more types of albums. So obviously lots lots of artists have regular albums, but they also release live albums, demos, EPs, all that sort of thing. Now, if you want to go in and and just look at, well, I want to listen to EPs from the 2010s. Okay, you can do that. That's kind of weird, but you could totally do that. Another really cool thing, I I think maybe this is just because I'm getting older, but I love these types of features. They've added a feature called On This Day. I'm used to getting this from OneDrive. I'm used to getting this from Google Photos. I'm used to getting this on Facebook. I love it. It's super nostalgic. They're now doing that for albums. So every day you open up the app and it'll say, here's an album that was released on this day 20 years ago or you know whatever number of years ago. And then you can listen to it. And that's just a, a cool way to start your day. There are some requirements here. So it, it of course requires the latest version of the Plex Media server because all of this work to to figure out which songs sound similar to each other is done on the server. It's not done on your client devices. So you're going to need the latest version. That, that's version 1.24.0 or newer. Also, it kind of depends on what your server is running on. If you have your server running on a standard PC, whether that's Windows, Mac OS, or Linux, you're good to go. If, however, your Plex server is running on an ARM CPU, that's, I think, me, like in NVIDIA Shield, it's not supported. So for me, I can't really try this unless I want to fire up a secondary Plex server on one of my PCs to, to give this a try. But the but like I've said, the other downside for me is I stopped buying music years ago once I decided to just jump fully into Spotify. So, I, you know, in the last eight years, we've probably purchased three albums, maybe. 
So I may be not the ideal person for this, but I kind of wish I was because this sounds really, really cool. And frankly, I hope that it, it does inspire Spotify and some of the other services out there to provide similar functionality because it just sounds like a really great way to experience the music that you actually want to listen to when you get into a certain mood. You know, and, and it even, you know, like maybe you've got a particular song in mind that is not a typical song for that particular artist. Like maybe it's a, a heavy metal band, but they've got one song on, on an album that's an acoustic song. And you're like, that is the song I want to listen to right now. And I want to listen to similar things. And probably in that situation, there's almost nothing else from that artist that you would want to listen to. So you wouldn't want to do an artist radio version of that because that wouldn't be what you wanted. So there's just so many cool uh, possibilities here with this sonic similarity functionality that Plex has built into the, the Plex media server and Plex amp. So go and give it a try. I know a lot of you out there have massive music collections. So I want to hear how this all works out from you. Please write in and let us know what you think of this functionality in Plex. One more audio story here for you, and that is that Sony released a new soundbar. It's the Sony HT-A7000. Sony's still not very good at naming things. And this is a very, very high-end soundbar. We're going to link to the review of it from The Verge. This is this is impressive and it seems like it's targeted more at you you gamers out there, especially if you have a PlayStation 5 and and we'll get to that at the end here. So why is this for gamers? Well, on top of it just being a fantastic sounding soundbar, it has two HDMI 2.1 inputs. Uh, as pass through. So if your TV only has one HDMI 2.1 input and you've got multiple game consoles, now you get two extra ones on the soundbar. And these inputs will support 8K, they'll support 4K 20. It's good stuff there. Also, this is an expensive, high quality soundbar. So you've got a lot of different options for how you can get audio pumping through this thing. Of course, there's Bluetooth, but Bluetooth isn't the greatest when it comes to audio quality. So there's also Chromecast, there's AirPlay, there's, and you can even use it as a Google Assistant or the Amazon Voice Assistant, which I don't like to say the name of, but you know the one that we're talking about. This is a 7.1.2 soundbar. That means that it can do surround and it does Atmos. It has two speakers that fire upwards at your ceiling that then reflect that that uh, overhead sound back down at your ears. It does offer the option of expanding it with two surround speakers and a subwoofer. Those all, of course, add to the price, but do add to the audio quality. But the price it's a lot. You know, we we frequently talk about, you know, say how expensive Sonos products are. And Sonos has a really nice soundbar that even does Atmos. And I believe it's $800. That's a lot for a soundbar, but it's a really nice soundbar that does Atmos, so you expect to pay more. This one is $1300. And that doesn't include the subwoofer or the surround speakers. Now, on its own, even without the surround speakers and the subwoofer, The Verge says it sounds really, really good. And the the Atmos experience is probably, I, I believe they said like, it's it's pretty similar to what you get with the Sonos Arc. Maybe a little bit better, but it's $500 more than than the soundbar from Sonos. And if you want to add on the surround speakers, they're $350. And the subwoofers, you have two options, a 200-watt or a 300-watt option. Those are either $400 or $700 for the subwoofers. So this all cost 
a lot, but it's also real like it sounds really good according to The Verge. And it's dead simple. If you want to use their remote, the remote is super convenient. They've put all of the right buttons on the remote for switching inputs and and switching EQ options and things like that. All of that is good. There's one major, major downside to this, at least if you're not fully locked into the Sony ecosystem. I said this is really good for most gamers. It's true if you have a PlayStation 5. If you've got an Xbox Series X or S, this might not be the soundbar for you because those HDMI 2.1 pass-through inputs, they don't support VRR or ALLM. That's variable refresh rate and auto low latency mode. So that doesn't mean that you can't use this at all. If your TV has multiple inputs for that, you can plug your Xbox into the inputs in the TV instead of the ones in the soundbar, and you would be fine. But if you're going to be dependent on plugging your Xbox into the soundbar and then the soundbar into your TV, like maybe your TV only has one HDMI 2.1 input that supports all of those things, and it's the EARC input, which is where you would need to plug the soundbar, then your only option is to plug your Xbox or your PlayStation 5 into the soundbar. And then in that case, you lose out on variable refresh rate and auto low latency mode. Now, auto low latency mode, you can you can turn that on manually, right? You, you, you could do manual low latency mode by, by just switching those settings on your TV on your own. But losing out on variable refresh rate, that's a pretty huge loss. So is this $1,300 soundbar the perfect one for you? It might depend. But if, if you're an Xbox gamer, it might not be if you're looking for those types of features. Rounding out the news tonight is one gaming story, and this is about a couple of new controllers from Scuff Gaming. If you are a hard, hardcore gamer out there, then you've probably heard of Scuff Gaming. If you're not super, super hardcore and into competitive gaming, you probably haven't even heard of these guys, even if you've had an Xbox like your whole life. They make really high end, very customizable gaming controllers and they've released their first two controllers specifically designed for the xbox series x and s in fact these actually have the same chip inside of them as the regular xbox controller so you're getting the same you know low latency wireless connection there you're getting the same firmware update capabilities that the regular Xbox controllers have and all of, of course, all of that same compatibility, whether you want to use it with your Xbox, with your Windows PC, uh, any of that, it works. It's also got Bluetooth if you want to use this with a phone or a tablet or your PC or something like that. And of course, they're wired. They include a USB-A to USB-C cable for plugging these into whatever device you want to play with. So what's cool about these? Well, if you know about the Xbox Elite controller, it's similar to that. So they've got four extra paddles on the back of the controller. This would be roughly where your fingertips land when you're holding a controller. And those four paddles can be mapped to any other button on the Xbox controller or combination of buttons on the controller, except for the Xbox button, the share button, and, and the guide and view buttons. So any of the the face buttons, the triggers, the uh, the bumpers, all of those things, the D-pad buttons, all of those can be mapped to the paddles on the back so that you have even easier access to whatever buttons you want back there. They also have adjustable triggers so that you can make the 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 depth that you have to push in on those triggers a lot shorter. Uh, They say that you can make it roughly equivalent to clicking a button on your mouse. So that's super short, uh, which should be helpful in competitive first-person shooters because you don't have to move your fingers fast to pull the trigger. They also come with three different sets of analog sticks, uh, 
I think it's two concave and two dome shaped or sorry, two different sets of of concave ones and then one set that has a a dome type on the top of the stick. They offer even more that you can purchase. They also offer a replaceable D-pad similar to what the Elite controller does. That will cost you $10 extra if you want the other D-pad option. They also have a bunch of really cool designs for the actual Xbox shell uh, so that your controller, like some of these look really, really nice. And they're swappable. Like you don't have to just pick one. You you can buy, you know, one to start with and then for 20, 25 bucks or more, you can buy other ones later. It doesn't have all of the same customizability as the Elite V2 controller though. So the the Elite you can customize sensitivity of the the analog sticks. You can't do that with this one. But for the most part, it's pretty similar. The other main difference is these this does not have a built-in rechargeable battery pack. Some people are going to be happy about that. Some people won't be. Uh I I like that option. I like being able to use rechargeable AA batteries uh, so that if battery life starts to fade over time, I can just put different batteries in instead of being stuck with the, the built-in internal battery. Uh, but the Elite V2, it uses a built-in rechargeable battery. So uh, that that's your options there. Now, the Xbox Elite V2 controller, that thing cost... $180. And these are similarly priced. There's there's two different options here. There's the Instinct and the Instinct Pro. The Pro has a, a few more of those customizable features that we had mentioned. It also has uh, a nice grippy rubber grip on it that the regular Instinct doesn't have for $170. It seems like both should have that, but they've got to have a price differentiator. So I guess that's why they tossed that in there. So 170 bucks for the Instinct, $200 for the Instinct Pro. One thing that I'm thinking about as I record this is I wonder what the warranty situation is, because the thing that really annoys a lot of people with the Microsoft Elite controllers is they've been known to break a lot and they're expensive. And the warranty is like, a couple of months. So if the scuff controllers offer a, a year-long warranty, a two-year warranty, something like that, then maybe that becomes a, a, a better value for you. I I love the idea of these types of controllers. And frankly, I could use any possible advantage to help me when playing Call of Duty. But I still just can't justify spending that kind of money on a controller that you know is eventually going to fail in some way, whether that's the analog sticks start to drift or other things that just start to break on these. Like these are devices that wear out. They are they are devices that have physically moving parts. Things will wear out and break eventually. And at 200 bucks, to me, that just seems like a lot of money on something they could break in a fairly short amount of time. But I would love to hear what you all are thinking about with these these scuff gaming controllers and if you'd rather just use an Xbox Elite controller. Okay, so getting into what's been going on in my entertainment center. I actually watched a movie. I watched something on my TV. I know that doesn't happen super often for me, but I did. Uh I don't even know why I did. Like I, I came downstairs one night around nine-ish and thought, ah, I'm, I'm going to switch out the strings on my electric guitar, so I'm going to turn something on to watch. I had no idea what I was even going to watch, but I thought, hey, this NVIDIA Shield, it's running Android TV. It ought to recommend something that I want to watch. And it did. And it recommended The Tomorrow War. It's that Chris Pratt movie that came out very recently on Amazon Prime. It's an Amazon Prime exclusive futuristic sci-fi movie uh, where humans come back from 30 years in the future to say, hey, uh, we're at war. And if we're going to have any chance at winning this war, uh, you know, for the, the fate of our civilization, then we need your help. Interesting plot. 
good acting, good special effects, but I don't know. This the movie was fine. It was enjoyable. It, it's a movie that's basically free, right? I mean, it's on Amazon Prime streaming, so it didn't cost me anything extra to watch it. It was an enjoyable couple of hours, but not exactly the greatest movie I've ever seen. Uh, Jen, I think, liked it more than I did. I told her that I don't think I'm in the minority here, and I went and looked online, and I think Metacritic gave it a 45. I think Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 40. And she was like, you just don't like Chris Pratt movies. I said, I don't think that's true. I like Chris Pratt. He seems fine. And she said, really? What's a Chris Pratt movie you like? And so I had to go and look up IMDb to see what he's been in. As usual, I think Jen's got a point. Although, I don't have an issue with Chris Pratt. I think he's a good actor. I like him. But this movie wasn't great. I'm not super big on the Marvel movies and really, really not into Guardians of the Galaxy, which he's obviously in. And the only other things that he's been in that I've seen, the only other thing that he's been in that I've seen is Passengers, the movie that he did with with Jennifer Lawrence, which I also just thought was just okay. So I don't know. I I don't think it's him. Like I'd like to give him a little bit more credit than that because I do think he is a, a pretty good actor. I just apparently haven't been that big of a fan of any of the movies that he's been in. So sorry, Chris Pratt, if you're listening to this, uh, I I think you're good. I I think it's just the roles. Sorry, man. All right. So that's it for the things that I've watched. Uh, It was a good couple of weeks of gaming. Uh, I've been mentioning for months that I've been slowly working my way through Wasteland 3 on the Xbox. Thank you, Game Pass. In fact, every game that I'm going to mention here is on Game Pass. I've been so I've been working through Wasteland Three with Joe, uh, my my friend and, and coworker, the the guy that I did the Story Players podcast with. We finally finished Wasteland Three. We we enjoyed our time playing the game. The writing I've mentioned in the past is really really good. I'm not going to say that it's like the greatest story of all time or anything like that, but it's it's an enjoyable story. It's got a, a lot of uh, decision situations where the things that you decide and the actions that you do, whether you mean to or not, uh, do have consequences within the game, sometimes very permanent consequences within the game. Do any of them like radically change the outcome? I doubt it. But overall, if you're looking for a a higher quality turn-based strategy role-playing game and you're into post-apocalyptic sci-fi, this is absolutely a game worth checking out, especially if you have Game Pass. Another game I played a little bit more of on Game Pass is The Ascent. This is a futuristic, like, cyberpunk-looking... It's kind of like a twin-stick shooter. Like, think cyberpunk Diablo looking style game that looks beautiful, but it's, it's a shooter. It's not, you know, barbarians and mages and, and archers and things like that because it's in the future. And it's also got co-op. It's got a four player co-op. It's, it's pretty good. It's, it's got some technical issues, but, uh, the, the group of guys that, that I regularly play games with, I think we overall enjoyed it. We're not, I don't think any of us are thinking like this is our new favorite game, but I think we're planning to go back and play more of The Ascent. And the fact that this is a game that was built by a team of 20 people is absolutely mind blowing when you look at, especially the the visuals in this game, it looks really, really good. And then last but certainly not least, Hades came to Xbox Game Pass in the last week. This is a game that won Game of the Year from all sorts of places. It had been on Switch. I think it's been on PC and PlayStation for a while. Now it's on Xbox and through Game Pass. This is a roguelike game from the company Supergiant Games. They are known for Transistor and Bastion and Pyre. I might be blanking on, on, on the name of that last one. 
they've got a lot of great games. This is different than all of them. The The viewpoint is similar to Bastion and Transistor, but it's a roguelike where you are the son of Hades and you're trying to get out of hell. And it's a roguelike, which means you're going to die a lot. Uh, but the 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 story is interesting. The The writing is really good and, and clever and fun. I was really enjoying it. I've never really got, gotten into roguelikes before. I was really getting into it, but man, I just, I don't think I'm good enough at this game. So I, I might be done. I, I was playing it a little bit more last night and I didn't even make it as far in, in those couple of runs that I played last night as I had done previously. I was just getting frustrated and I, I, I guess this game just isn't for me, but I do absolutely appreciate why so many people have have loved it the way that they have i just think that unfortunately it's probably not for me and that's okay like that's one of the great things about game pass right i didn't have to pay any extra for this game and this month is a killer month for game pass because we've you know that that came out within the last month we had flight simulator come out um there is Another game coming out this week called 12 Minutes that I'm super excited about. Uh, a game called Art of Rally came to Game Pass. I did play a little bit of that uh, in this last week. Not a ton, uh, you know, probably 15 minutes of it. I, I did like it, but probably requires a little bit more time for me to give much more of a review of that. Uh, but man, Xbox Game Pass just continues to kill it in, in what they've been offering for your 10 or or $15 a month. So, man, if you're a gamer and you still haven't checked out Game Pass, you need to because it's full of so many good titles. All right, well that does it for the show this week. If you want to get a hold of us, I'm at Josh Pollard on Twitter, Richard is at Richard Gunther, and if you want to follow us the website on Twitter or Instagram, it's at @digimediazone. We've got other ways of getting a hold of us too, including the email address. All of that is in the show notes over at thedigitalmediazone.com, where you'll also find links to every story that we talked about in this episode. While you're there, you might want to come back on Tuesday evenings. That's when we normally record the show, and normally we record the show live on Twitch. You should subscribe to us on Twitch and and that service will notify you when we go live or follow us on Twitter because we'll also tweet when we're going to be going live. And having you for the, the live show is a lot of fun for us and for you because there's a chat room and you get to interact with us while we're doing the show. So it's a ton of fun and hopefully we will see you there soon because that's going to do it for episode 562. I'm Josh Pollard. Thanks for listening to Entertainment 2.0. Adios.